and let me know when you're ready. Uh, fire away. We begin tonight with the alarming rise in infections fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant and the sobering words from Dr. Fauci warning today, things are going to get worse. The Delta variant, a new strain of SARS-CoV-2, has come to infamy through its spread throughout India and now the world at large. The Delta variant, along with vaccine hesitancy, has been preventing a return to normalcy in places around the world. This podcast series aims to break down the latest updates surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Andrew, and today I am joined by Umer Irfan, a science reporter who covers the pandemic extensively at Vox. We discuss herd immunity, the politicization of vaccines in the U.S., and whether or not the FDA should formally approve the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Umer Irfan, thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's begin by talking about the Delta variant. Um, you wrote an article on Vox that um, contains a quote that I thought was really interesting, so I'm just going to quote it. Um, quote, a variant of concern is one that spreads more readily, causes more severe disease, or reduces production reduces protection from vaccines or previous infections. Delta checks all three boxes, um, end quote. So I guess my question right now is out of the three boxes that it checks, um, like reducing protection from vaccines or reducing protection from um, previous in infections or like causing more severe disease or being more contagious, which of those boxes do you think is like the most disconcerting? I think the highest level, the higher level of transmission there is definitely the one that's most concerning because this is something that changes the course of the pandemic writ large. This is something that not just affects individuals, but it affects our public health strategy. And we're definitely seeing the implications of that. You know, if it was simply something that was more virulent or led to more severe symptoms, but didn't spread as much, we would not be seeing this huge spike in new cases that's stressing our healthcare infrastructure in places where you're seeing the Delta variant spread. But the fact that it's transmitting so readily is definitely concerning. You know, there have been estimates that it's been up to six times as infectious as the original strain of the coronavirus that circulated last year. So that's something that's definitely changing the dynamics of the pandemic. And that's what's going to be the most stressful aspect about this. All right. Um, yeah, so within the last month, or so, which countries would you say have done the best job responding to the Delta variant with appropriate measures such as like mask mandates and lockdowns? It's hard to say because the uh, spread of the Delta variant has not been uniform that, you know, some countries got hit earlier and faster and harder, whereas others have had a more of a slower rise and had more time to respond to it. So it's kind of difficult to make a straight comparison. But certainly you saw, you know, the countries that have actually been doing a good job throughout the pandemic, you know, countries in Southeast Asia, places like Taiwan and Singapore and uh, Vietnam and, you know, Australia and New Zealand, you know, while they did see spikes in new cases, they managed to keep their overall case count very low, even though they don't have a very high level of vaccination. And that's because they were willing to deploy public health measures like mask mandates and also things like testing, tracing and isolation to contain the spread of this before it could become too out of control. The countries that have been struggling throughout the pandemic have continued to struggle with the Delta variant, including the United States, that, you know, this is a place that 
has close to 70% of its population, adult population vaccinated, but is still seeing a rise in new cases. And that's because there are still, you know, pockets of the country where the virus is spreading and vaccination rates remain low and people are not willing to adhere to public health measures. So um, generally that seems to be the uh, pattern that we're seeing with this. All right. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna ask you a question that I know you've been asked several times, but I'm just gonna ask it again. Um, what is herd immunity? And do you think there are any countries or uh, the US in general that is approaching that point? Herd immunity is this idea or this uh, threshold where you have enough of the population protected from spreading the virus such that even the people who are not immunized or have not been infected gain protection. So essentially, once you get to the point where you have a majority, a significant majority of people infected, even if you have a handful of individuals who are not protected against the virus, the fact is the people around them who are immunized act as a barrier. So you don't have a major outbreak or a spread. And that is sort of the goal. Basically, you don't necessarily need to get to 100% vaccination to get to herd immunity. Uh, but the challenge with that, though, is that, you know, the herd immunity is something that's assessed at a population scale. And we're seeing subsets of the population where you have very low vaccination rates and very high levels of transmission. So, again, going back to the United States, even though we have 70 percent of the population, adult population vaccinated overall, there are still parts of the country where you have below 20 percent vaccination rates, which means the majority of people there are still vulnerable to infection. And that means that the virus can still continue spreading, it can still continue mutating, and it can still continue doing a lot of damage. And so while we may look at the big picture overall and it may seem like the things are moving in the right direction, if you zoom in, you realize there are some pretty um, troubling spots throughout the country where you know herd immunity is still a very far off uh, line. Do you believe that um, the US should have been a bit stricter in terms of things like mask mandates and um, lockdowns after uh, within like the last month or so in order to better contain the rise of the Delta variant? I think so. Yes. You know, the vaccines are definitely one of the most powerful tools we have, but they're not the only tool. And the effectiveness of vaccines can be enhanced if you do it concurrently with other public health measures like testing people, identifying the infected, telling them to isolate, wearing masks, maintaining social distancing. So the U.S. may have been a bit premature in terms of like re lifting mask restrictions and reopening parts of the country, even when vaccination rates were not high enough to reduce transmission to acceptable levels. So yeah, that could be, um, I think it's de there's definitely a compelling case to be made that the United States was a bit premature in relaxing. And certainly uh, we're seeing that now with the Centers for Disease Control reimposing or issuing new guidelines saying that even vaccinated people should still be wearing masks under certain circumstances. Yeah, but there was something interesting that you alluded to briefly earlier and then you delved into a bit in Today Explained where you were mentioning basically the politicization of vaccination where more blue areas and states tend to be vaccinated at higher rates than red areas and states. Would you mind elaborating on that? Yeah, there are definitely patterns and fault lines we're seeing among the unvaccinated, particularly in the United States. And certainly politics is a big uh, dividing line. You know, we do see a distinct trend where the parts of the country, even at the county level, that went for that voted for Donald Trump in the last election have much lower vaccination rates than areas that voted for Joe Biden. And that trend, you know, scales with the percentage of the vote. So the larger the majority of Trump voters in an area, 
the uh, larger percentage of unvaccinated people. Now, certainly there are some outliers to that. You have red areas, there are Republican areas in the country that do have high vaccination rates and you have Democratic areas that have low vaccination rates. And that's because of the other fault lines at the pandemic. You know, we see areas with high poverty, people with lower incomes tend to have a lower vaccination rate. People of color also tend to have lower vaccination rates, but those uh, fault lines are not as big as the political ones. And also people who are younger tend to have lower vaccination rates in part because vaccines were rolled out on a graduated basis where younger and younger people were gradually folded in. But there are still some young people that have decided that, you know, the risk of getting COVID-19 is worth dealing with and, uh, and are not choosing or choosing not to get vaccinated deliberately. So there are multiple factors here, but definitely politics is the biggest one. Yeah. But um, moving outside of the U.S., which countries do you think have done the best job with like higher vaccination rates and getting people to trust the vaccine and all that? My understanding is that Canada recently overshot many other countries and, and has the, a larger share of its population vaccinated. Uh, you know, uh, Israel has been highlighted throughout the pandemic for its vaccination strategy and getting lots of people vaccinated very quickly. The United Kingdom as well has been pretty doing pretty well with uh, getting vaccines rolled out. Uh, you know, and the strategies are mixed, but generally the main thing that has been working is to lower the barriers as much as possible, to be as proactive as possible about getting people vaccinated rather than making people wait in line or, you know, log in through complicated websites and, and travel to clinics. The countries that have done well with vaccination are ones that take vaccines to the people, that find people wherever they are and go door to door even to get them vaccinated. And, and that's really the strategy that has proven to be the most fruitful. Yeah, but um, moving back into vaccine hesitancy, um, another thing you mentioned on Today Explained is that um, you identified people who were not vaccinated as people who, um, some of them were aggressively opposed to the vaccine, but some of them were just like hesitant because they had concerns that hadn't been addressed at that point. So I remember um, reading uh, Matt Iglesias' newsletter uh, to the audience members who are, might not be aware. Matt Iglesias was one of the co-founders of Vox. Matt was basically giving the argument that having the FDA officially approve the vaccines would help stifle the vaccine hesitancy in more solidly blue areas. Because obviously you mentioned that there's a correlation between um, like people in like bluer areas tend to be more vaccinated. But if you look at the percentages, there are still really large swaths of people in those areas that might be liberal and still haven't gotten the vaccine yet. So his argument is that um, those people might not be just like the conspiracy wingnuts who are virulently opposed. Maybe those are the people that are swayed by arguments online, like the, the argument that if the FDA hasn't officially approved the vaccine, then maybe you shouldn't get it. Do you think that officially having the FDA approve the vaccine might help get more fat people vaccinated in blue areas? Potentially, you know, you're right that uh, there are a lot of different motivations. And yes, that, you know, politics isn't the only one. There are definitely people in left leaning areas or more democratic leaning areas that also have their own reasons for hesitancy. And yes, they shouldn't all be lumped in under the same umbrella. Not everyone who's hasn't been vaccinated to date is, uh, you know, actively refusing. Some are just hesitant and some just simply haven't had the opportunity to get it. So, so that's one that's one reason why, you know, lowering the barriers to access and, and make it as easy as possible is certainly a strategy that's compelling. But in terms of like getting more firm public approval, I mean, the uh, Food and Drug Administration has, you know, been 
with even with the interim approval, like this was based on trials of tens of thousands of people, you know, they're 30,000, 40,000 people just to get that emergency authorization. Now, getting the full approval really doesn't change much in terms of uh, how the vaccines are being distributed. I mean, maybe some people might see it as a vote of confidence, but really it's uh, um, the full approval, the full licensure from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration that mainly governs how the vaccines can be marketed. So if it's something that's only available on an emergency use basis, you know, companies like Pfizer, they can't run ads, they can't be actively promoting it. But once they get that approval, then they can, you know, they can do this like a, they can promote this like any other kind of commercial pharmaceutical drug. So that, that really doesn't really, I'm not sure that that would actually move the needle. I mean, if people need that extra vote of confidence from the Food and Drug Administration, sure. But if they weren't convinced to this point, I'm not sure that that's going to move the needle for them now. But I mean, definitely that's something that's going to happen, but it's also the full licensure process is a little bit more tedious than the emergency use authorization process. So it's something that's going to be a little bit more time consuming. And if you're going to be waiting for full licensure, that's going to be a few more months, I think, until that actually happens. Okay. Um, but do you think that like theoretically, if they, that was to happen and companies like Pfizer and Moderna would be able to launch extensive marketing campaigns, do you think that would also help to significantly improve um, vaccine rates? I, I mean, I'm not convinced that it will be a significant uh, improvement. I mean, like it, it will for some people on the fence marginally. Yeah, I'm sure some people will be convinced by this. But um, at this point, I mean, like if the public health emergency and all the public health guidance for getting vaccines hasn't convinced you, I'm not sure what a for profit company's advertising campaign is going to uh, do as far as changing your mind. Um, and, and I think like uh, at the same time, you know, that might that could also fuel more hesitancy because at this point, you know, the companies aren't allowed to market it. They have to be uh, very strictly regulated by regulators. And at that point, once they get full licensure, suddenly they have like a financial incentive to promote the vaccine. And so that can also have sort of a, a countervailing effect as well. So uh, eventually, I mean, I do think that these vaccines will get some, some kind of commercial approval. Uh, and but at that point, though, you know, you'll still have, you know, the majority of the U.S. population vaccinated. You'll have many countries close to, uh, you know, 70 to 80 percent. So there won't be that large of a market left to be uh, convinced at that point. And I think the larger market to be concerned about are the people that are adamantly refusing, the people who are actively refusing vaccinations rather than the people who are sort of hesitant and waiting for the final green light. All right. Uh, got it. Um, regarding uh, news about the pandemic, are there any areas that you wish were reported on more? I think we still need to do a better job of testing for the virus. You know, uh, testing has kind of fallen off of a cliff uh, since the vaccine rollouts have begun, particularly in Western countries. But testing is how we stay ahead of the virus, like figuring out how it's spreading. You know, there's been a lot of hand wringing recently about breakthrough infections. Now, uh, those are what we, we expect them to be extremely rare, but we're just not testing people who are vaccinated. So we don't really know how much people are actually getting infected. And keep in mind, there's a distinction between being infected and having the disease. Most of the people who have breakthrough infections have almost no symptoms, but the concern is they may be able to spread it to people who are not vaccinated. And so that's why there are some uh, precautions that are being recommended for people who are vaccinated in some circumstances to continue wearing masks. But we don't really have a good handle on that because we're not testing to see just what that level of transmission is. Another factor is that we're not testing enough 
for uh, the genomes of the virus. We're not doing enough genetic surveillance. That uh, genetic surveillance is what allows us to figure out what version of the virus is spreading. And so this is the early warning system for new variants of the virus. And uh, the US in particular has not been doing a good job of surveillance on this front. Uh, the UK has been pretty good about it actually and better than most countries. So uh, keeping on top of those two things, you know, better monitoring, better tracking of how the virus is moving and of the virus itself, that can help solve a lot of problems and also uh, get ahead of any new emerging trends. All right, uh, circling back to something we talked about a while ago, when it came to the politicization of vaccination in the US where um, people in areas that were solidly more red were more hesitant to take the vaccine, would you mind proposing any potential solutions to that sort of politi unfortunate politicization? It's, it's really difficult. You know, there's uh, a lot of interesting social science research around it. Uh, you know, there is some evidence that elite cues can help. So like if Republican Party leaders and leading luminaries on the right came out openly in favor of vaccines, then that might convince some people. Uh, and, you know, including, you know, former President Trump, you know, openly advocating for vaccines that might help. But a lot of people, you know, for them, they're, they're pretty dug in. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, research that shows that, you know, once you show people information that contradicts their worldview, it doesn't change their mind. It makes them more uh, adamant about their views. And so you have to be kind of careful about how you uh, apply pressure. Now, the one tactic that does seem to be effective is mandates. You know, we saw in France, for instance, you know, France has a very uh, fairly low rate of vaccination is in Western Europe. But once they put in a requirement saying that in order to go to cafes and restaurants, you'll have to show proof of vaccination, suddenly the vaccination rate shot up. And similarly, there's been a lot of polling that showed in the U.S. that, you know, people won't necessarily get vaccines to for public health reasons or because they think they're at risk. But if it becomes a requirement to, say, fly on airlines, then they'll go get vaccinated just to check that box. So if there were mandates, if states and governments were willing to actually, you know, impose restrictions on people who are not vaccinated or to grant privileges to people who are vaccinated, that may actually be the thing that moves the needle the most. All right. Uh, thanks for answering. Uh, before we wrap this up, do you listen to any political podcasts on your own? I don't listen to very many podcasts um, in general, just because it's, uh, I have a hard enough time finding uh, time to just listen and pay attention to things. Uh, I tend to uh, listen to a lot of news-based podcasts and just keep, to keep ahead of uh, current events. But uh, the, there's uh, there are a couple that I do follow. Uh, Talking Politics is one, um, and I listen to that one occasionally. But beyond that, I'm not really following too many political podcasts. All right, Umer Irfan, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.